The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter and the fifth verse. The fifth verse in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now we must uh, take this verse, of course, with the two verses, one on each side of it, verses 4, 5, and 6. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Here the apostle uh, continues this uh, theme of uh, unity about which he is concerned and about which he is addressing these Ephesians. The first practical thing he exhorts them to do and to observe always in their Christian life is to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And now he's giving them help in order to do that. And he does it, we've seen, in terms of this uh, great and inevitable unity which obtains in the church. Because the church is ultimately the work of the Blessed Holy Trinity. Immediately we think of the work of the Spirit. We've already dealt with that in verse 4. One body, one spirit, one hope of our calling. Yes, but also in terms of the work of the Son. And also in terms of the work of the Father. Now, in looking at this fifth verse, we have come to the second, therefore, of the uh, three divisions which the apostle implies here. The uh, unity of the church, uh, as it is quite inevitable, in view of the doctrine of the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, once more, it is interesting to observe the way in which the apostle orders these things, the way he arranges them, the sequence uh, which he employs. Uh, having started with the work of the Spirit, because that is the practical approach. You think of the church, well, you think first and foremost, therefore, of the Spirit, who is in the church in this special sense, who is the life and being of the church, as we've seen. But having said that, you see, it inevitably leads us on to this next matter. Because, after all, the central work of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son. Our Lord himself makes that perfectly plain. He says, he shall not speak of himself. He shall glorify me. It doesn't mean that he will not speak about himself, but uh, he will be given uh, what to speak and uh, what he will be given will be words and teaching that will glorify me. That is the astounding thing about this great salvation of ours when we view it properly. That the Father sent the Son, and the Son glorified the Father. Then the Father and the Son sent the Spirit, and the Spirit glorifies particularly the Son. So, having considered the doctrine of the unity of the Church in terms of the Holy Spirit, His person and His work, we quite inevitably are led on by that very doctrine to this great and glorious doctrine of the Son. As the Apostle Paul puts it in one word once and forever in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no man 
can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Very well, the Holy Ghost leads to that. It is he alone who enables us to see him and to know him. The princes of this world, the apostle tells those Corinthians, did not know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But God hath revealed these things unto us by his Spirit, the Spirit which searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ and to reveal him to us and to glorify him in our esteem. But then there's a second reason, and the second reason is this, obviously. Having considered the church as the body, one body, you inevitably ask, well, who is the head of the body? A body doesn't function without a head. And the answer is, of course, at once the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The apostle has already reminded us of that in the first, first chapter, where talking about him, he says, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and in all. And you'll get the same thing stated by the apostle frequently in his various other epistles. Well, now then, that brings us, you see, quite inevitably, but it is important to observe this doctrinal approach. These things are not put down accidentally. There's a system here. There's a mind at work here. The Holy Spirit illumines the mind. And thus, you see, an illuminated spiritual mind working out the truth. Very well, uh, this again, as we shall see, emphasizes the unity of the church. Now, we must hold on to that. The doctrine of the person of the Son here is put before us in order that it may lead us to the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and the importance of preserving that. Now then, how does the Apostle use this great doctrine? Well, you notice that he just puts it like this, one Lord. Now sometimes he doesn't put it quite as simply as that, you will find, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 and 6, he says, one Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what he means here. But he just says, one Lord. And I believe that he used this one term in order to bring it out, to emphasize it, to, to put it before us as if to say, well, I say just one Lord, and there is only one, as I'm going to show you. But he is referring, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now then, here is the argument. The Lord Jesus Christ in and of himself leads to unity and should therefore always produce unity. And therefore, one of the best ways we can see and understand this biblical doctrine of the unity of the church and keep it and preserve it is to keep our eyes steadfastly on this great doctrine of the person of the Son of God. That's the argument. How does it do it? Well, let me suggest to you that it does it like this. Look first of all at the uniqueness of our Lord's person. One Lord, he says, 
What he means is that there is only one who can really and truly be described as the Lord. Keep your eye on that term as you read the New Testament. It is the Lord. The disciples said on one occasion, the Lord. Now then, one Lord. And uh, he means first and foremost, I say, to emphasize the utter, absolute uniqueness of the person. There has never been anybody like him. There never will be. There never had been anybody like him in the world until he came. There will never be anybody like him in any subsequent period. One Lord. The only. He stands entirely alone in all the glory of his absolute uniqueness. And surely there is nothing more important for us to contemplate and to meditate upon than just this. Look at him. There he is, Jesus of Nazareth. You look at him and you seem to be looking at a man. And he was a man. He belonged to time. He was in time. He was in the world. And yet, you see, even what I've said already is wrong in a sense. You must never say these things separately and alone about him. When you look at him, you're not only looking at a man, you're looking at the same time at God, the eternal Son. You are looking at the Lord of glory. Now, I read to you those two great Christological passages this morning, and they are undoubtedly the two greatest statements of this truth, which are to be found anywhere in the whole range of Scripture. You remember that mighty, magnificent statement of it at the beginning of the epistle to the Hebrews. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, by Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Then listen to this. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, that's the one at whom we are looking, the brightness of the glory of God and the express image the full effulgence of God's essential glory. That is the person whom we are considering. That is the one at whom we are looking. And what I am saying is that the incarnation of the Son of God is a unique event in the whole of history. It had never happened before. It will never happen again. Once and forever. Here is, I say, the staggering thing, the thing that it's almost impossible for us to grasp. We believe it. It's the essence of our faith. He was in the form of God and didn't count that equality with God something to be clutched at and to be held on to, says Paul in the second chapter of the epistle to the Philippians, you remember, but made himself of no reputation. That's it. The Word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us. This is the unique event of all history. One Lord, the only one. The apostle tells the Corinthians that this is a great mystery, a hidden mystery. A mystery revealed from the foundation, hidden from the foundation of the world, but suddenly revealed. The hidden mystery. And what makes us Christian is that we have been given an understanding of the hidden mystery. This incarnation of the Son of God, one Lord, one only, at whom you can look and say, yes, man, God, the Theanthropos, God, man. Two natures in one person. Now, what the apostle is saying is, you see, there is only one Lord. And why does he say it? What are the implications? What are we to deduce from that? Well, I say he is saying this in the interests of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How does it work? Well, it works like this. He is Christianity. And he alone. Christianity is Christ. It isn't a collection of ideas, it isn't a collection of thoughts or of philosophies. It isn't a, a mere matter of teachings. Primarily, it is he himself and our relationship to this one person. Now, you see how that works in this matter of unity. Teachings and thoughts and uh, philosophies vary and uh, they therefore tend to divide. But here it's a personal relationship. It's uh, a knowledge of a person and being in a given relationship to this person. Well, the argument is that as a person is one, so the relationship must be one. There's only one Lord. Therefore, there is this essential unity in all who belong to him and in all who are truly related to him. Now, we can never say that too frequently. The danger of the church always is to be forgetting the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be concealing him and hiding him behind teachings. Now, you've got to have teachings, of course, but I say we must never allow them to come between us and him. They are simply derived from him and they're meant to lead us back to him. And so much of the trouble in the church throughout the centuries has been due to the fact that people have forgotten the Lord himself. We are such frail creatures and we're all so fallible and we all tend to go to extremes in one direction or another. But altogether we are guilty of this, that uh, the person himself is lost sight of. These other things are given prominence and they come between us and the people and him. One Lord. But I draw a second deduction, which is this. Because there is only one Lord, we must remember that he cannot be divided. Now, I'm just using there the argument of this great apostle as he writes to the Corinthians. He says, I'm uh, being uh, informed that there are divisions amongst you at Corinth. I'm told that one says, I am of Paul, and the other says, I am of Apollos, and another says, but I am of Cephas. 
Is Christ divided, says Paul? Do you realize what you're doing in forming parties? In thus aligning yourself behind certain men and certain names? He says, do you realize what you're doing? You're trying to divide Christ, and you can't. He's one. There is only one, and he's indivisible. Now, you see, this is very high doctrine. Two natures in one person. The two natures are unmixed. The two natures are indivisible. And the two natures are so joined together in him that they cannot be divided. Now you read the history of the church and keep your eye on the various heresies that have arisen. And you'll find it's all been due to the fact that they've forgotten one Lord. They've been making a multiplicity of lords in a sense. There were some, you see, who taught quite early in the church that the two natures were fused into one and were no longer distinguishable. There were others who went to the other extreme and who said there were two persons, God and men, not two natures in one person, but two persons, Christ as God, Christ as men. You must have heard that heresy sometimes, even in the modern church. People, you see, in order to bring out the two aspects as they think go too far, and they preach on Jesus Christ as God, Jesus Christ as men, we must never do that. Jesus Christ is always God-men. And we must be very careful and wary about saying this, he did this as a God, he did this as a man. No, no, he's God-men. Indivisible. Christ, I say, cannot be divided. And thank God for this. He is always the same. He always will be the same. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that hymn we've just been singing, that hymn of Horatius Bonner puts it so perfectly. There is no night in him. There is no change in thee. It doesn't matter what happens. Oh, this is the most glorious thing of all. The greatest comfort of the saint. Jesus Christ is one. The Lord is one. There's only one. And he's always, ever, eternally the same. His years do not change. Very well, then, I say, let us draw that deduction. We see that Christianity is Christ, this one Lord. He makes it. Without him there isn't Christianity. He's essential to it. Unlike all other teachings, you can divorce other teachings from their propagators. You could divorce Buddhism from Buddha. It wouldn't make any difference. And so on. But here he is everything. There is no Christianity without him. He's made it. He is it. And it all results from this amazing, unique fact of the incarnation and all that he has done. But then there is another deduction, I think, at this point, which is this. One Lord. Very well, then, I say, you can't believe in parts of him. You believe in him, or else you don't believe in him. You cannot divide him in that respect either. Do you remember again how the apostle puts it? And incidentally, the first chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians is the best commentary on all this. Uh, who of God is, uh, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, says Paul. Uh, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He, Christ the Lord, the one indivisible Lord, is made all that to us. 
And therefore to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ is to believe in the whole of him and to believe everything that is in him. Well, you see the importance of that. We cannot say, we must not say that we've believed in him for righteousness, but not yet for sanctification, not yet for redemption. That at this point I've only taken my justification. Uh, later, it's possible for me and I may take my sanctification. That's dividing Christ. He, Christ, is one and he has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You take the whole of Christ or none. And so, you see, let me put a question for your consideration, for your careful consideration. Is it right to form movements around different aspects of his work and to separate them and to divide them when he is one and when he is indivisible? Think that out. Work that out. Is it right to have a movement about justification only, another about sanctification only, another about his second coming only? When Christ is one and is made all to us, because of the unity of his person. We don't take his teaching. We are not saved by aspects of his teaching. We are saved by him and he is one and he is indivisible. Christ cannot be divided. One Lord. And therefore I say that we must be always careful to start with this great doctrine. And to remember that he is made the same to all believers. He is not one thing to one and another to another. There are not many Christs. There is only one. And if I believe in him, I am in the same position as everybody else who believes in him. One Christ, therefore one church. The second point I would make is this, is the uniqueness of his work. And it follows, of course, from the uniqueness of his person. And yet we must look at it. We ought to be looking at this constantly. We can never take it for granted. We can never assume that now we've got that. We can No, we must always stay with this. If we don't, says the apostle, there will be a division. There will be some sort of schism. So I can put it like this, that there is only one saviour. There are not many saviors. There is only one savior. Now this is the great theme of the whole of the New Testament. And this is where Christianity is a unique faith. The world believes in many saviors, in many deliverers. It puts its list out. You must have read it and seen it or heard it frequently. It talks about Moses and Jeremiah and perhaps Isaiah and then John the Baptist and then Jesus and then one of the apostles, Paul or another, and then some great men who has figured since then. It throws in Confucius and Buddha and so on. No, but the New Testament says, no, this is unique. There is only one Savior. And to deny this is to deny the central and most essential truth of the Christian faith. This is something that I would like to put in this form. There is this aspect of intolerance in the Christian faith. 
And I am suggesting that if we haven't seen the intolerant aspect of the faith, we've probably never seen the faith. Now let me give you some statements to substantiate what I've said. I am asserting that to put anybody by the side of Jesus Christ or to talk of salvation apart from him and without him at the center is a betrayal and a denial of the truth. Listen to the Apostle Peter putting that. He says, There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. You remember the occasion? The authorities were trying to prohibit Peter and the apostles from preaching in the name of Christ and working their miracles in his name. And Peter, filled with the Spirit, made that reply. And there it is once and forever. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. And what that really means is this. There is no second name. His is the only name. One Lord. Now, says Peter, don't add anything unto him. Don't put another name by the side of his. He's alone, and he must be alone. How can you put anybody by the side of this blessed person? Is there another who has come down from heaven to earth? Is there another who's God and men? Of course there isn't. He's alone, and his uniqueness must be preserved. He doesn't need an assistant. He has done everything. He said on the cross, it is finished. He left nothing for us to make up, for anybody else to make up. He and he alone, he trod the wine press alone. Nobody else could do it. But he has done it. But then let me give you another word of the Apostle Paul. Listen to him in writing to the Corinthians, a most important statement in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 5 and 6. You see, there were people in the church at Corinth who were not clear about all this. They'd been converted, but still they rather tended to believe that now though they had come to believe in the one God, there were other gods, the gods they used to believe in, the gods whom they used to worship and to whom they used to take their sacrifices in the pagan temples. They were not clear about this, some of the weaker brethren. So the apostle puts it like this. He says, though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. But to us, there is but one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Now there it is plainly shot. People talk about gods. There are no gods. There is only God. These are not gods. They are figments of men's imaginations. They are uh, propositions that men have put up. They are projections of men's ideas. They are not gods. They have no being. They have no existence. There is only one God. And there is only one Lord Jesus Christ. There can be no other, there is no other. But listen to him again in writing to Timothy. Here it is, he says, this is the truth. There is one God and one and only mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One and one only. 
There is no one who can come between God and men except this person. There is no daysman, to use the language of Job of old, who can bring us together. There is God in his heaven, and here am I on earth. God in his holiness, I in my sin. Oh, is there no one who can mediate? How can I pray to God? How can I go to God? How can I be guided by God? How can I listen to God? How can I have access to God? There's only one, says the apostle. One God and one and only mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. The one who was made a ransom. The only one. Ah, my friends, it's only as we grasp the uniqueness of this that we really begin to understand the true nature of the church. If one man says, ah, I can go to God direct, and another says, I can't, except by the blood of Christ, there's division. If you say to me that you can find God without Christ and him crucified, I say you're not in the church. Whatever you are, whoever you are, however good your life may be, there is only one mediator. Why? Well, there's only one Savior. There was only one good enough to pay the price of sin. There is only one who could take unto him human nature and bear the burden and the load of its guilt and deal with it forever. One only. One Lord. One Savior. And no other, there never will be. There is no need of another. Very well then I say that any teaching that disputes that is what the New Testament calls Antichrist. And there are many. But the apostle says, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He knew his philosophy. He knew the ideas of the Greeks. He knew the ideas of the Jews. He says, no. And my dear friends, there can be no argument about this. The incarnation, I say, is unique. Why do you talk about anything else when God has done this thing once and for all? Why say you can get to God without him? Why did God ever send him if you can get to God without him? No, no, there's only one Lord. And he is absolutely unique and essential. But listen to the apostle putting it again. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Yes, not only that, he says, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all there. Well, why do you look anywhere else? Why do you say you can get to God without him? All the wisdom and the knowledge that you and I need about God and salvation, it's all in Christ and only in Christ. Beware, he says to the Colossians, lest men spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. If you don't hold the head, which is Christ and who is Christ alone, you are without salvation, you're yet in your sins, and you don't know God, and you're not related to him. One in his person, one in his work as Savior, the only Savior, the only mediator between God and men. So, you see, we must put it like this. Christianity at one and the same time is absolutely intolerant and unifying. 
It must be intolerant. Though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, says Paul to the Galatians, let him be accursed. What a statement. If an angel from heaven, he says, comes and preaches to you, and he denies what I've told you about this blessed person, let him be accursed. Intolerant. And we must be intolerant. You mustn't put anybody near him, he's alone. And you must never say that you can know God without him. We must be absolutely intolerant at this point. Ah, yes, and because we are all together intolerant at this point, and are all in him, we are all united, welded into one. Intolerance and absolute unity. Isn't that the New Testament gospel? And we must preserve both. So I say at one and the same time that there can be and must not be such a thing as a world congress of faiths, and I add, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And it is because we are all one in Christ, you cannot have world congress of faiths. It's a farce. It's a denial of Christ. Christianity cannot enter in. It cannot enter into anything that says, ah, oh, yes, of course, Christianity is marvelous. But after all, God gave insights to the Buddha. He gave insights to Confucius. And I may learn something from them. I don't want to learn. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. I don't, in, I don't want them. I'm not interested. I have it all in him. And even to give a glance to another is a denial of him. Intolerant and yet unified. And that brings me to my last point this morning. He is unique in his person. He is unique in his work. And he is also unique in his relationship to us. And here again we see the unity coming out inevitably. Listen to this. I say that he is unique in his relationship to us. A student is in a relationship to his teacher, his tutor. Ah, but there is no one to whom we are related as we are to Christ. What's our relationship to him? It's this. He owns us. He owns us because he has bought us. Do you remember how the Apostle puts it in his farewell speech to the elders of the church at Ephesus, Acts 20, 28? Feed the church of God, he says, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. That's the relationship of Christ to the Christian. It's absolutely unique. One Lord. One only who has bought us and purchased us. When we were slaves of Satan, he's bought us out. He's ransomed us. He's redeemed us. He's paid the price. There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and take us in. He's done it. He is our owner as our Lord because he has purchased us. We belong to him. The slave and the owner. That's the relationship. And of course that leads to this, that he is the master of us all. 
Do you remember how he said it to the disciples in that upper room the day, the very occasion when he washed their feet and then dried them with a towel? He said, ye call me Master and Lord, and ye do well, for so I am. He says, I am your Master. I am your Lord. You're right in what you say. You're designations of me are correct. I am your Lord, I am your Master. Now then, you see this unique relationship in which he is to us and we are to him. There's only one Lord, there's only one owner, there's only one who's died for me and purchased me. There is none other, and it's true of every one of us. Well, very well, here are the implications. We no longer belong to ourselves. We are no longer our own masters. We have no right to believe what we like. We have no right to do what we like. We are not our own. That was the very argument of 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, wasn't it? He says, you people are committing sin. You don't realize what you're doing. Know ye not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in you, and you are not your own, for ye have been bought with a price. If only we all realized this, there'd be perfect unity. We are not our own masters. But it's equally true to say that nobody else is my master. And we are not the masters of anybody else. No one is to lord it over us, and we are not to lord it over anybody else. Now our Lord himself has put this again very perfectly. You'll find it in Matthew 23. In verses 8 to 12, I must just read them to you. Listen to this. Be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. One Lord, and because of one Lord, you see, we are all on a level. Not one of us is a master, he's the master. We are all in the same position, and we must all serve one another. He put that again very plainly on that feet-washing occasion. He said, this is the deduction I want you to draw. Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. It's inevitable. It's logic. It doesn't matter who you are. Get down, he says. I'm the Master, you are but the servants. And if I, the Master, have done this, you must all do it. Let him that glorieth glory in the Lord. Ye are bought with a price. Be not the servants of men. And so the apostle, you see, in his particular injunctions, he brings out things like this. Ye masters, do the same things to them, your servants, forbearing, threatening. Why? Knowing that your master also is in heaven, and there is no respect of persons with him. 
You see, it's the doctrine of Christ as our Lord, as the one who owns us, as the one who has authority over us, that solves all the problems. And you get him saying exactly the same in the epistle to the Colossians. Listen to this. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God, and whatsoever he do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord he shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Masters, in the same way, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in him. You see, the doctrine of the one Lord leads inevitably to a doctrine of the one church, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are all joined to him, the same person. He is in us all. And the love we are to try to get to know, says Paul in Ephesians 3, is this love of Christ that passeth knowledge. But above all, you see, this is the argument. He was in the form of God. And he counted it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. And he came down and down and down, even to the death of the cross and the shame and the agony and all that was involved. He did all that. You remember the argument? Let this mind be in you also. The mind that was in Christ and that led him to do that for you. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. My dear friends, don't you agree with me? If only we were all right about our relationship to him on our doctrine of the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, most of our problems would be solved immediately. If only we knew him in the sense of being able to say, to me to live is Christ, or with Count Zinzendorf, I have one passion, it is he, it is he alone. All these other things would vanish and disappear. Divisions and all failures are ultimately due to a failure to realize that there is only one Lord. And when I realize and when you and you realize also that that eternal Son of God laid aside the insignia of his eternal glory and came down and was born as a babe in Bethlehem and endured the contradiction of sinners against himself for 33 years, was spat upon and scoffed and mocked and jeered at and went through with it all, not holding on to that which he had a right to hold on to, but making himself of no reputation when I know that he did that for me. I'm nothing, I'm nobody. I care not what men may do unto me. Nothing matters except that I live for him and for his glory when I survey the wondrous cross 
on which the Prince of Glory died and for me. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And if we were all like that, we should be maintaining, preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let this mind be in you also. Amen.